هذا القرآن يوحدنا لطريق الخير يوجبنا الله تعالى أنزله ورسول الله معلمنا ورسول الله معلمنا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so let us start off with a question. That question being, we are discussing the seven main components of an individual's life. Who can remind me what those seven main components are? This is what we've been discussing for the last two halaqas. You should know this by now. Finance is one, excellent. Go ahead, Dean is the other one, excellent. So we have five more. Family, no looking for my paper Ayub. Especially you, especially you. Health, excellent. Social life, excellent. Career, Careers, excellent. And order emotions. emotions. And what did we miss? So we have Dean. Sorry? We have we have Dean, we have finance, we have family, we have social life, we have health, career. Emotions, that's seven. Okay, we had seven. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Taib. So there were a couple of things that I left out from last week that I want to add into the beginning of this halaqa bidhillahi ta'ala. We were talking about stabilizing one's deen and I mentioned this for those of you who prayed Salatul Isha with us last week. We mentioned this right after Salatul Isha. That one of the most key and fundamental aspects of maintaining and preserving your deen is congruency. Making, that, making sure that you're just as pious in private as you are in public. And I said one of the ways you do that is that you do an act a day that is purely just between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we mentioned the hadith where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said that one of the individuals to be shaded on the Day of Judgment will be رَجُلٌ تَصَدَقَ بِصَدَقَةٍ فَأَخْفَاهَا حَتَّى لَا تَعْلِمُ شِمَالُهُ مَا تُنْفِقُ يَمِينُهُ That it is an individual that will give in charity so secretly and so privately that his left hand will not know what his right hand gave. Now the benefit of that is that this is an indication of your iman. Because it is very easy to be righteous in public, to always speaking dhikr, you know, being, make, praying your sunnahs in the masjid, and so on and so forth. But when you're alone with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one else sees you, that's where it's very important to have that concept of congruency. So making sure that consciously, each day, you're doing a deed that is purely just between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second thing I wanted to add, when we were talking about finances last week, I wanted to talk about the issue of taking a loan, taking a loan. You know, generally speaking, we live in a society where it's, you know, highly encouraged to take a loan. And you may go to a bank, as soon as you put in your card into the machine, like, by the way, sir, you're eligible for a free loan. You know, here's $10,000 and you just sell us your life type thing. And you know, it's that easy and they're willing to give you a loan. And then you want to go to school, you have to take a loan. You want to get married, you have to take a loan. You want to buy a house, you have to take a loan. So all of these aspects of your life are all of a sudden tied into debt. Now if you look at the nature of debt, there's no one in the history of mankind that became happy while being in debt. But in reality it brought misery not only to an individual, but to societies and communities as a whole. 
And you'll notice that you know, there's this concept in economics that's happening right now called quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is when the government puts in money into an economy to buy the debts of people that they haven't been able to pay off. So all the taxes that you end up paying, they end up going towards this. And then a lot of the times what ends up happening is that the government itself is in debt and doesn't have enough money. So what do they end up doing? They end up starting to print money. And then once they start printing money, prices go up and inflation happens. And thus, you know, the amount of things that you're able to buy, eventually they decrease. And this is something that, you know, you can look at it on a, on a daily basis. For those of you, actually, who's the most eldest person here? I don't want to point anyone out, but do we have anyone who was born before 1960 here? Before 1960? No. <laughs> no. So we, we have so people who were born in the 60s. Who was born in the 60s? A couple of people in the 60s. How much, do you remember how much a can of Coke was in the 60s? Roughly? I can say I don't think like it. Like one kilo of rice. One kilo of rice. Like only like, uh, uh, what will be that? Uh, like, uh, 50 cents in like, our money. Like 50 cents of your money in Bangladesh. But I want to talk about a can of Coke. Abdullah, you remember how much a can of Coke might have been? Nusf riyal. Nusf Half a riyal. Anyone knowing like cents? Because you always hear these stories that cans of Cokes were like 5 cents, 10 cents. And I want to know how old that actually is. But the point being, can't, it was 25 cents? You weren't even alive then, how do you know? <laughs> you learned about it in social studies? Okay. So let's just say for argument's sake, let's just say it was like 50 cent. I want you to think about going anywhere. You can't even buy generic brand Coke now for 50 cents. It doesn't happen. And if you want to buy like the real deal, it's like a dollar fifty. You know, you don't get less than a dollar anymore. And that's the reality of that's what inflation is. That things that you were able to buy for cheaper, you're now paying more money for. Now, why does that happen? Because of this concept of people getting into debt, the government buying that debt out, the government not having enough money, so they put money into the economy, and this causes inflation and causes prices to go up. So it's very important that as students, you know, we have a lot of young people here, we need to find solutions so that as our children, as our youth are going to university, they're not getting into debt. So either their family is able to support them, or as Muslims, we have a support system where they can gradually pay things off and there's no interest involved and it's a viable solution, right? So it's not something that they'll be in debt for for like the next 20 years of their life. And you look at the state of, you know, um, how much it costs to go to university these days and the average student is leaving with $29,000 of debt after four years. That's a lot of money. Then you add to that the other expenses they're going to face. So it's a long-term debt that ends up happening. So it's very, very encouraged that as a Muslim, you try to stay away from debt. Because I mentioned this in the halaqah on Wednesday, that if you look at the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Sulu, the head of the Munafiqeen, he was the leader of the Munafiqeen, he passed away. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, had it in him that he wanted to pray janazah over him. He wanted to pray the janazah over him and Allah forbade him. However, when an individual passed away that had a debt over his head, that had a debt over his head for three dinar, the Messenger of Allah refused to pray, pray his janazah. That he had the opportunity to pay off that debt and he didn't do so. And then the companions had to pray the janazah and the Messenger of Allah didn't do so. And that debt is lingering upon the person's head until it's paid off. Meaning that their hisab will not take place until that debt is paid off. So it's a very serious thing to take into consideration. Now with that having been said, we move into our topic for today, which is the other five categories of your life. Meaning your social life, your health, your family, your career, and your emotions. And what we're going to begin with is your career. What we're going to begin with is your career. And this is your very first exercise right now. I want you to imagine 
that you live in an age where people no longer get paid. Everything in the dunya is free, okay? You want to buy something, it's absolutely free. You want to get a new house, a new car, a new video game system, whatever you want, it's absolutely free. Now as a return for this, the job that you end up doing, you don't get paid for. You will not get paid for your work, but you still have to work 40 hours a week. So now I want you to answer a question, write it down on your paper. If this was the situation that you were living in, that you would not get paid for your job, what is the job that you would want to be doing? What is the job that you would want to be doing? So I want you to write that down. If money was not an, uh, an object, what job would you be doing right now? 40 hours a week. It shouldn't take more than two or three minutes, inshallah. Abshir, what'd you write down? Yeah, what would you want to do? Work at Galloway Park? Callaway Park. What is Callaway Park? It's okay, it's an amusement park? And you'd want to just ride the rides all day and night? That's what you want to do? Excellent. Ayub, what would you put down? You didn't write anything? Khalas, write something down. Go ahead. Food inspector. Food inspector. <laughs> you mean a food critic? Yeah. A food critic. <laughs> Excellent. Go ahead. A game tester. Excellent. Anyone else want to volunteer their answers? Volunteer their answers. I want to hear the adults who are working right now. What would you do? Become a teacher. Become a teacher? Uh, something in the education field. Abdullah, you want to volunteer your answer? Not a teacher. Not a teacher. <laughs> but what would you do though? You don't know in specific? What would you do? A programmer. A programmer. Why would you want to program things? But what type of programming would you do? You want to program video games. Excellent. I want one of the adults to volunteer. Adults, what would you do? Which is? Uh, cars. Which is cars. So sales or? Sales and purchasing. Sales and purchasing. Excellent. Excellent. Anyone else? Another adult? Our brother over here, what would you do? I'd probably travel and write re reviews. Okay, excellent. So travel and write reviews. You already said food critic. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Last one. Assassin. Assassin. Oh my god. <laughs> Let me guess, you like Assassin's Creed. Have you played it? <laughs> there we go. Okay. Now when you're looking at career, there's several aspects of looking at it from. There's several aspects of looking at it from. So let's look at aspect number one. Aspect number one is what we will call talent and passion. Talent and passion. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with each and every individual, He created these two concepts. What they're talented at and what they're passionate about. So talented at means that your, your learning curve is a lot lower than someone else who is learning that concept. So for example, you have individuals that are very good at math and they pick up math concepts very, very easily as compared to another student that may excel in like art or in English. So this is what we will call as a talent, that you're naturally better at it than the average person your age and in your community and you know, your standard of living. That's what the talent is. Then you have the second concept, which is passion. And passion goes back to that concept that if you are not being paid, you would still enjoy doing this job. That is what your passion is. Now the danger with blindly following your passion in work is that you will end up getting jobs like a video game tester. 
you'll end up getting a job as a video game tester. And I'll share a real story with you. When I was 13 years old, my father actually used to own an electronics store. And the head manager of Sony in Quebec came to our store and he said we would like someone to try out our PlayStation 1 at that time. And I got really excited. So he's like, you're going to try out you know, X amount of games and you need to answer the following questions. Now I was jumping for joy, I thought, man, this is amazing. What type of idiot will not accept this job? Allah is my witness, I got through about 10 games and I'm like, I can't play anymore. You know, it's too much. Because you don't like all the games and answering questions about these games is very tedious. You know, very meticulous answers are needed. And eventually I'm like, I can't do this. Even if you paid me more for it, I wouldn't do it. So by like the 15th game, I'm like, Kalas, you know, I need to move on. Because there's only a limited amount of fun that you can have. And you'll notice that the fun that you can have is very relative to the amount of work that you put in. So people who work hard, they need to play hard. But people whose whole life is play, you'll see they get very bored very easily. And that is when they start going into like extreme sports or maybe drugs or something else like that to find that excitement that is no longer in their lives. So you need that element of hard work in order to enjoy your play. So that's one aspect of looking at career. You focus on passions and you focus on talents. And you want to find something that combines the two. So it, it combines your talent with your passion. And ta'ala, you will excel at that career. You will excel at that career. The second way of looking at the type of career you get into is looking at three things. And these are the three most important things in every career. The three most important things in every career. And this is what will be benefit, fun, and profitability. Benefit, fun, and profitability. So let's go through the easy ones first. Fun is very easy. This is something that will vary from person to person. Something that you enjoy doing. That's something that, you know, while you're working, you're actually smiling, you're laughing, you're easy going while you're doing this job. That is what the fun element is referring to. Then the second element is profitability. Profitability. Meaning that you're actually making money through this job. So it's not just a volunteer position. You know, someone who likes to volunteer at a hospital, they can have a good time, but they're not getting paid for this. So it's not something that, they, that can sustain itself. So profitability means that you're earning enough money according to the equation we gave you last week. According to the equation that we gave you last week, that is how profitable your job should be at the very least. If you're making more than that, that's great and fantastic. And then the third thing, it is something that is beneficial and something that is productive. Something that is beneficial and something that is productive. Now, you'll notice that over time, certain trends you know, they, 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 they're, no, they're no longer in use. So if you look at computer programming, you'll notice that back in the day, they used to use binary code, like ones and zeros, ones and zeros. But no one uses ones and zeros anymore. You have complex coding that takes place now. So what may have been, you know, productive back then is uh, no longer productive now. So now the question arises, how do you find something that is beneficial? How do you find something that is beneficial? And there's two ways of doing this. One, you can assess your community yourself, so look at the needs of your community. So for example, if you were to look at the Muslim community in Calgary, what are some of the trends that you would notice? One of the biggest trends you notice is that we need Muslim psychologists. Without a, a shadow of a doubt, we need Muslim psychologists. In fact, if you were to try to find Muslim psychologists in the city, I was only able to find two of them. I was only able to find two. Another thing, you would need a family counselor or a family therapist. Every second day, there's a divorce taking place in one masjid or another. So you need a family counselor or family therapist. A third thing you would need is that you would need a female gynecologist or an obstetrician. There are some of them there, but they're...
are actually Muslim. Very few that are actually Muslim. And then you look at other aspects, and this is like into long-term planning, but people who will um, you know, provide solutions for Islamic finance. Alhamdulillah, Sheikh Hassan is working on that now. Then looking at long-term Islamic education. That even though, alhamdulillah, we have an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, what happens when our kids go to university? We're still sending them into the exact same traps, right? So those traps, they don't end just in high school. That's just where the foundation is. But when they get to university, they're still, they're still susceptible to some of these traps. So we need someone to think about you know, developing a Muslim university, or at least a, a university system that is purely accommodating to Muslims. So whereas you know, the theory of uh, evolution isn't taught as a fact, and where secularism is not the only way forward in terms of state and, and church. And then the concept of religion is not something that is just private, but you know, God actually has an active role in your daily life as well. So these are some of the things that you would look at. So you can survey your community and look at the needs of your community. The second thing to do it, and this is, you know, may be successful, may not be successful, is that you'll notice that search engines, they actually share their statistics with you in terms of who is searching what and how active a search is. So when you go to yahoo.com, you look at the top right hand of the page, it tells you what the most active searches are on Yahoo within the, this day and within the past week and within the past month. So you'll get to see what the most active searches are. And what the most active searches does is, it shows you what are the things that people are seeking information for. So you'll find that tax season comes, all of a sudden is, you know, how do I evade my taxes? You know, that's like the number one thing. So you can choose your career based upon such things because that's what the people are looking for. So Google has its AdWords. You can use Google AdWords search and it will allow you to see what the people are looking up so you can provide that service to them. So you can provide that service to them. Now with that having been said, this concept of career, I believe, is a, a very fundamental and crucial concept. Because you'll notice that, generally speaking, when we talk about midlife crises, generally speaking, we don't think it applies to the Muslim community. We don't think that happens. But looking forward now, if you look at the types of questions that people are coming up with, it is those brothers between you know, 30 and 40, 40 and 50, that are like, I've been doing this job for the last 20 years, and it's the only job I know how to do but I feel like killing myself at work. You know, it's painful for me to go and sit in the cubicle, it's painful for me to deal with my boss, and I've just had enough. And Abdullah is smiling, mashallah. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. So eventually you get fed up. And that is why it's very important to look at these three main aspects, that it's fun, it's beneficial, and it's profitable. It's fun, it's beneficial, and it's profitable. The last thing I'll mention about career is what we will call a cash flow quadrant. A cash flow quadrant. Meaning that one of the objectives behind your career, one of the objectives behind you working is for money to come in. It's for money to come in. That one of the objectives behind you working is for money to come in. Other objectives are for you to increase your set skills, for you to be you know, productive in society and community. Who has that cell phone? <laughs> Please turn it off. Jazakallah khair. It's for you to be beneficial and productive in society. So those are other objectives. So now the concept of cash flow quadrant Cash flow quadrant, the basis behind this theory is that once your finances are taken care of, you don't need a set job that you need to work in. That you can keep jumping and hopping from job to job, from career to career, purely based upon interest, purely based upon the amount of fun that you want to have, and you can keep jumping around. Now the theory behind cash flow quadrant is that there are four types of income that will come, in, uh, that will come with an individual. Four types of income. 
Just by a show of hands, has anyone heard of cash flow quadrant before? Anyone heard of cash flow quadrant? So this is the first time you're hearing about it. Excellent, I feel good now. So I'm teaching you guys something brand new. Cash flow quadrant. Every person will fall under one of four types of jobs. So number one, they are an employee. So meaning a system it already is in existence and you're coming into that system and trying to benefit and work into that system. So that is an employee. And this is where 95% of the workforce will actually be. That everyone will be employees. System number two is where you are a one-man show. One-man show means that you run your own business, but you are the only worker. You are the only worker. You have no other employees. You're self-employed and you're doing all of the work. So that is the second cash flow quadrant. The third cash flow quadrant is that you actually own your own business, meaning that you're from the 5% that has a system and people come and work for you and they try to fit into your system. And then the fourth cash flow quadrant, and this completes the quadrant, is the topic of investment. The topic of investment. Now the theory behind cash flow quadrant is that if a person can be involved in all four quadrants, then his finances will be taken care of and he can do with his life whatever he pleases. He can do with his life whatever he pleases. So now I want you to understand this. So this means that you will have a part-time job where you are an employee for someone else's system and you will be earning money from that. Then number two is that you will be your own boss. So you'll have your own thing that you do. You'll be self-employed. So besides your job, let's just say, you have a talent as a programmer. You know, our young brother over here wants to be a programmer. So at nighttime, he'll go on to somewhere, a website like Elance. Elance is like, you know, freelance contracting. He goes on to Elance and he says, I'm a game programmer. Is anyone looking to hire me? And then all of a sudden, like Nintendo from Japan, they're like, hey, you know, mashallah, you're a, a programmer. You know, come work for us. And they give him a private contract. So he's his own boss. Then eventually, mashallah, he's a, a, an advanced programmer. This is like when he turns 16, inshallah. And he's like been addicted to video games his whole life. At 16, he's like this master programmer. He's like, you know what? I have enough experience. I can make my own system now where I can hire other programs and they will work under me. So he just needs to manage that. And then the last one is that once he has enough capital saved up, he finds a way for his capital to work for him. So he finds other individuals that are looking to start up businesses. They don't have the capital. So they'll be like, you know what? Here's some capital, start up your own business. Or he finds, you know, halal investments in terms of stocks. Then he invested in those halal stocks and that money is working for him even though while he's not working. And this is what is known as the cash flow quadrant. So that you don't need to focus on one set career, but rather you can jump around and do whatever you want to do and then your finances are already taken care of. But you have to have like this cash flow quadrant. And then he mentions like a whole bunch of people, like you're talking about like Warren Buffett, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, Donald Trump, they all fall under this cash flow quadrant. That the, re the reason why they got so rich was because they followed this theory. Now I haven't tried it, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I'm throwing it out there in case anyone wants to try it. So that's under the, the concept of career. Under the concept of career. Now we move on to the concept of health. The concept of health. And subhanAllah, you know when we do that exercise of the wheel, you'll notice that in my wheel, mashallah, I'm pretty balanced. I'm like a five, six, seven in like every field, except when it gets to health. That's when like it drops down to two. And this is something, subhanAllah, like for instance, a young child, this has been something I've been struggling with. But I've studied this a lot. So I have the theory down, but it's the application that's like ridiculously difficult. And subhanAllah, you know, this is like the, uh, in like whenever I assess people's problems, that's what it always comes down to. It's not that people don't know what is right and wrong. Everyone knows what is right and wrong. It's just they don't know how to get it into action. 
So people know they need to wake up for Fajr. The issue is how do I wake up for Fajr, right? We know we need to do that. Now similarly over here, I have the theory down. So anyone who needs like theoretical tips in health, I can hook you up. But in terms of getting you to do it, that's like your own problem. So when it comes down to health, you have two main components, two main components. What you eat and the physical activity that you do. What you eat and the physical activity that you do. In terms of what you eat, there's just three simple things that you need to follow. Three simple things that you need to follow. And I'm telling you, if you follow these down to the T, it will take care of most of your health problems. So the first thing you want to look at is eliminating all of your soft drinks. We're talking about juices, we're talking about Pepsi, Coke, 7-Up, anything that has fizz in it, even if it's diet, you get rid of it. That is like a cancer to your body. Your body was not created to consume these things. Now I know it's difficult that you know, you're having a burger and fries, you can't just drink water. You know, it doesn't work. The whole package has to be there together. You know, and subhanAllah, you know one of the funniest things you do is like you go to McDonald's and you'll be standing in line and someone's like, yeah, can I have two Big Macs, two large fries, you know, five desserts. Oh, and by the way, make my Coke a Diet Coke. <laughs> you know, those extra hundred calories, that's going to make a difference. But the reality of the situation is the soft drinks are the biggest killers. You know, you drink one can of Coke, that's like 40 grams of sugar and 140 calories right there. And you don't even get any energy out of it. Like you drink that and in the long term, it starts wearing down your body's, uh, the, the bones in your body, it breaks down the teeth in your body, excessive amounts of sugar causes diabetes and so many other problems. So you want to get rid of the soft drinks. Number two, is that you want to be extremely careful of the carbs that you eat. Extremely careful of the carbs that you eat. And this is in two components. Component number one, is that you need to minimize the carbs that you eat. That you, we live in a culture where carbs are excessively promoted. So you need to have some sort of rice, some sort of bread, some sort of pasta, it always has to be there. But in reality, you'll notice that if you look at the way farmers lived, this is not always the case. If you look at the natural lifestyle, if you want to call it that, carbs are overrated. They fill up the stomach, but again, they don't cause much benefit. In fact, they become the primary reason of fat being created in the body when you have excessive amount of carbohydrates. Directly related to the, the carbohydrates, the second aspect is the type of carbohydrates you consume. So for example, you need to eat bread, you need to have pasta, you need to have rice. There's a world of a difference between having something that is whole wheat and something that is refined and white. So you'll notice that when you have white bread, it tastes amazing. You know, it's fantastic. You can't have like a burger with brown bread. It doesn't happen, it doesn't taste as good. But again, it's all a psychological thing. But in terms of your body's health, the way that they refine the flour, it's actually quite detrimental to, your, to, to, the, to one's health. So you change it from white to brown, and all of a sudden you notice that it makes a world of a difference. The amount of fiber that goes into your body increases, so you have a, a natural trip to the bathroom all the time. And you'll notice this is like one of the biggest issues with uh, white carbohydrates is that it actually prevents you from going to the bathroom regularly. It regularly causes constipation. And that's why people who have constipation problems, this is one of the first things that they tell you is that eliminate the white carbohydrates and replace them with brown carbohydrates. So that is in terms of the second thing, in terms of the way that you are eating. The second thing, in terms of the way that you're eating. And then the third thing, in terms of the way that you're eating, is the quantity that you eat. The quantity that you eat. And this is something that's very simple. You always know that the hungrier you get, the more your mind tells you you need to consume. So Ramadan time comes around and you've been fasting, like especially over here, mashallah, we have these like 18 hours days. The worst thing a Muslim can do 
is that at iftar time, he goes to an open buffet. That he goes to this open buffet, he's filled up one plate, he needs a second plate, the third plate, and this is all in the first go. So he's like balancing, like doing a juggling act with his plates. Then he starts to eat, and then he eats three spoons and he's full. And he's like, why did I do this? You know, why did I get so many plates? So now what ends up happening is that since you've been starving your body, your mind thinks that you know what, you can eat all of this food. But in reality, it can't. In reality, it can't. And your stomach is a muscle. So meaning the more you work it, the more it stretches out and the more, you know, stronger it gets to a certain degree. But in reality, the same thing happens the opposite way. That the less you eat, the more it shrinks and the less you need to consume. And that is why if you look at the Messenger of Allah he gives us this very simple and fundamental advice. It's as difficult as anything, but it's so simple. He says, when you eat and drink, divide it into three. Keep one third for your eating, one third for your drinking, and one third for breathing. And this is like such a simple solution that, you know, subhanAllah, even if we didn't have medical statistics to prove this, you know, the, the deen should be enough. But even medical statistics prove this, that you break down what you eat into these three categories, and a person can live a healthy life just by following this. So doing what they will call quantity control. So don't eat as much as you want, but rather plan it ahead. And I'll tell you some very simple psychological techniques, very simple psychological techniques. You'll notice that when you're eating, the bigger the plate, the more food you will actually eat. The bigger the plate, the more food you will actually eat. Whereas if you were just to have a smaller plate, your, your body will become just as full. Because what's happening in your mind is that your mind needs completion. Your mind needs completion. So your mind will not be happy until you've completed a task altogether. So you have this big plate of food, your body may be getting full, but it takes time to tell you that it's full. On average, about 20 minutes. There's like a 20 minute delay before it tells you that, hey, look, I'm getting full, we need to stop. It takes about 20 minutes to do that. Now, then what ends up happening is that before that kicks in, you, uh, while you're eating this plate, you want to finish this plate regardless of what happens. So what you want to do is focus on getting a smaller plate so your mind at least will be content that, hey, I finished this plate, I don't really need to eat too much more. Same thing with glasses. You'll notice that, I, I feel really bad giving this example in the masjid, but you'll notice that the way they cheat people uh, when they go to bars, when they go to bars. Like if you watch movies, you watch TV shows, you'll notice that when people go to bars, they always give them these wide glasses that they only fill up to the very bottom. They only fill up to the very bottom. And then the reason, the, psycholog the psychology behind this is that you give them a little bit, it keeps them desiring for more. It keeps them desiring for more. Now if you were to actually look at the content though, you put this in, the law, uh, in a taller, skinnier glass, and all of a sudden it can fill up half of the glass. It can fill up half of the glass. And once he has like two glasses, he's like, hey, you know, I've actually drank a lot, and then psychologically he doesn't want to drink anymore. Now similarly, if you're like addicted to tea and coffee, you're addicted to soft drinks, you're addicted to juice, focus on getting taller and skinnier glasses so that your mind understands, hey, I've had a lot already. Whereas the wider your glass, the more goes into it, and then the more your body will think, hey, you know, I've only had this much to drink. It hasn't been much at all, because it's getting tricked and deceived by your eyes. So now that's in terms of the things that you eat. In terms of the workout, now the each and every person will have different goals while working out. Our goal as Muslims is not to be completely jacked up and buff, but our goal is just to be healthy. 
Meaning that you should not be running out of breath walking up the stairs over here. You know, we have 10 stairs. You walk upstairs and unfortunately, myself included, by the time we get to the top, we're like huffing and puffing. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That the Prophet ﷺ clearly tells us, That the strong and fit believer is more beloved and better in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the weak believer. So we just want to make sure that we're healthy. We want to make sure that we're healthy. Now something simple that you can do is that you just need to work out intensively, 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day, you get your heart level to a, heart, uh, to a, a high heart rate, not extremely high, but relatively high, where you're sweating, you know, you're, you're for 20 minutes a day, that builds up your cardiovascular health, and bithinillahi ta'ala, you will be okay. Now in this topic in particular, uh, as we conclude, I'll be giving you books for each section so you guys can further your reading. But for this topic in particular, you'll notice that there's like a, a huge shortcoming on our end. That you know, as Muslims, mashallah, we have the most luxurious of cuisines. That you know, especially if you're like from Indian or Pakistani background, when we cook our curries, half of it is like butter and fat, and then the other fat is like the meat and the chicken and stuff. You know, and then same thing with other things. Like if you look at how they cook makluba and mansaf and all these other dishes, it's like cream and you know heavy-duty fat that's being used. So we have these issues, and that is why you know diabetes and cholesterol, all these diseases are rampant amongst the Muslims. And you know, now living in Canada. You know, we have some of these elements of our culture and it's fine to enjoy them on Eid, enjoy them a couple of times a year. But to have it on a weekly basis, you're waiting for a heart attack to happen. So we need to increase awareness with our families, within our communities, that we need to start living healthy lifestyles. And that you know, I know that one day if an imam was to give a, a khutbah, I'm just giving you a warning in advance now, on like living a healthy lifestyle, the people would be like, why did he waste our time? It didn't benefit it as, 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 at all. But the reality is, this is, these are like major issues that we're facing. You know, people are dying of heart disease, left, right, and center. It's like the number one killer. And no one's paying attention to it. We still keep going to fast food places. We still keep feeding our, our kids these, you know, high sucrose and fructose-related uh, uh, filled juices, which is killing them. It's destroying them. That, you know, the reason why they get so hyper and they start losing their attention spans is because of the sugar that we're giving them at such a young age. So now all of these things, they need to be discussed and ta'ala through the, the reading and discussion, we will get to that level. The third thing we move on to ta'ala is social life, social life. So now I want you to think about here as a community amongst the brothers, what do you do for fun? So this is the second activity you will do. I want you to write down that what was the last activity you did as a group of people for fun? So write down three activities that you did within the last year. I'll give you that much leeway. Think about the last year. Three activities that you did as a group to have fun. So write that down, please. Write that down. You done? Let's hear it. Eat out, laser tag, laser Eat out, tag. Laser tag and poker. And poker. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's what I was expecting. Can I get another volunteer? You can keep writing. If you're not done, keep writing. But I need volunteers. What are three things that you did as a group? You went hiking? And go for table tennis. Table tennis. 
Okay, so that's two. You couldn't think of a third? <laughs> You're a young kid, it doesn't count. I'm looking for the adults here. Because the young kids, they still generally, you know, they have fun. They'll play their sports and things like that. It's like when you hit 20 years old though, all of a sudden your social life is, hey, let's go to the theater and watch a movie. Or hey, let's go out to eat. Or let's play poker. You know, that's what you end up doing. And all these activities, they're stagnant. There's no physical activity involved. There's no adventure involved. That you can imagine a social life where the highlight of your year is that, hey, I went to a restaurant to eat with my friends. What type of depressing social life is that? You know, it's really depressing. And you know, we console ourselves by eating like these exotic foods. Hey, at least I tried something new. I tried escargot or I tried frog's legs or something like that. But really, it's a dead social life. That as Muslims, we don't know how to socialize. We don't know how to have fun. And that's why, you know, we've started up this Friday night program. Come play basketball, come play soccer, come play volleyball, come play table tennis, whatever your fix is. You know, at least do some sort of physical activity to socialize. The point why I mention this is because in Islam, this concept of socialization is not just for the sake of killing time. It's not just for the sake of having fun. But there's a greater objective behind it. A greater objective behind it. And that is to build bonds of brotherhood. That is to benefit from one another. And that is to increase in experiences. So that is why you look in the Quran and you'll notice that in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you this simple commandment. What does He tell us? He says, فَسِيرُ fil ard That travel the world, travel the earth. And in my personal experience, I don't think there's anything more beneficial than traveling. And this is something that should be done as, in, a, in a group. So as like the Muslim high school, that when our kids at the school, they graduate, we should try to get them, you know what? Let's take you all for Umrah. You guys can go and perform your first Umrah. Experience what it was like. Learn the history of Mecca and Medina. Learn the Sirah in action. So you get to travel over there. Go to Spain, you know, see what Muslim Spain was like. Learn about the Crusades, learn about what happened. Go to Turkey, look at how the, the Khilafah fell in like 19... What was it, 27? 1924, 1924. And you learn about the, the history of Islam there and what, you know, the Ottoman Empire was like. So we have this great history and this great opportunity to travel and to benefit. And that is where the true bonds will be built. And that is the type of socializing we want to, you know, try to benefit from. That is productive, it's fun, it's beneficial, and it gives you an experience. Like really speaking, what type of experience, and uh, Ayub, I don't mean to pick at you at all, will you get from eating out, playing poker, and what was the third one, laser tag? I mean, who remembers laser tag after it's done? You remember the person that won, but in terms of experience, hey, haha, I shot you. Like, that was it. There's no real substance in there. And it's not just, you know, with Ayub itself, myself included, the whole community included. We need to think of better ways to socialize and to have fun. So it's about, you know what, as a community, instead of, like inshallah in the summertime, instead of having the halaqa here on a Friday night, we're going to have our halaqa at Banff. So we'll go to Lake Louise, we'll get this massive area, and you know, have the halaqa there in front of the river. Give the adhan open in public, get people stare at us. What are these weirdos doing? And it's like, you know, this will be an experience. We're never going to forget that. That will be like a social activity. Now that's like on a communal level. You just need to focus on your individual level. That when you think about social life, be very creative, be very imaginative. And you'll notice that at the end of the lecture, I talk about this concept of a bucket list. That things that you want to achieve and you want to do. And this particularly applies to your social life. That do not restrict, you know, your social life just to eating out and, you know, come over to my house and have some tea. Or oh, we won't have mint tea today, we'll have chamomile today. And that's supposed to be a highlight for some reason. You know, this is the, what I'm talking about. We have the sadistic view towards socializing. So, that's the first element. 
The second element is doing things that develop relationship, develop relationship. Now, you'll notice that one of the things that tied the Sahaba radiallahu anhum together was the fact that they went out on these expeditions. That you know, their lives were in danger, they needed to depend upon one another. Now in our day and age, how do we replace something like that? How do you replace something like that? We don't have these expeditions that we're going on, but things like going camping and living in nature, you know, where you actually have the threat of like being attacked by a bear. And you know, you need to, someone to cover your back and you know, someone has to stay up at night making sure that nothing happens to our food. You know, those sort of experiences, they build bonds of brotherhood, they build trust, they build relationships. And that's the second element you want to look at in your social life. The fourth element now, correct? So we did careers, we did health, we did social. And now we're left with emotions and family. We're left with emotions and family. And we'll do those quickly. And I want to give the rest of the time to our beloved guest, Sheikh Muslih bidinahi ta'ala. So in terms of emotions, in terms of emotions, you'll notice that when it comes to emotions, the only thing that needs to be said over here is that where does true happiness actually lie? Where does true happiness actually lie? That you'll notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He created as one of our major motivations is the search for happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And that is what the American dream is based upon. That you come to America and all of a sudden you're meant to become happy. So this is what the Western world is based upon. But then you look at statistics, we have the highest suicide rates, the highest depression rates, the highest you know, domestic violence rates, the highest substance abuse rates. All these rates are off the charts. Why is it that people are not attaining happiness? And I believe our equation for happiness is messed up. So we need to realize firstly, where does happiness lie? Where does happiness lie? Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he says that the keys to happiness, they lie in three things. The keys to happiness, they lie in three things. Number one is being patient in times of calamity. If a person can learn to control themselves in a time of calamity, he will be happy. He will be happy. And the person who gets angry and upset, he lives a lifetime of regret because he ends up doing things that he didn't want to do, but because he couldn't control himself, he did those actions. So being patient in times of calamity. Number two, he mentions being grateful in times of prosperity. Being grateful in times of prosperity. Meaning that you learn to recognize the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ask and thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically for those blessings. So developing a mindset where you're actually thankful. And then the third thing he mentions is that mankind, we're prone to sin. We will make mistakes, we will sin. And the happy individual will be the one that hastens in repentance. And subhanAllah, how true this is, that you'll notice that when you committed a sin, and then you don't repent for that sin, that regret, it lingers in your mind. That you keep thinking, oh, the punishment of Allah is going to come down. You know, I should do a good deed, I should do something to make up for it. But the second you repent to Allah, the second you've cleared that guilty conscience, then all of a sudden you feel a lot better. You feel a lot happier. That burden is taken off from your shoulders. So those are the three things that Ibn al-Qaim mentions in terms of happiness. That's from an Islamic perspective. I want to add to this another perspective. That you'll notice the happiest moments in your life. What was happening at those times? You'll notice that it was never actually about you. The happiest moments in your life never actually had anything to do with you. It was the day perhaps your child was born, your child memorized their first surah, took their first step, graduated from school. It was the day perhaps you saved someone's life from a crucial accident. It was the day that you helped someone in need. It might have been the day that you opened the door for someone. 
All of these things you will see it had nothing to do with bringing pleasure to yourself. But it was about enjoying the happiness in someone else's happiness and in someone else's you know, good fortune. And this is in reality what happiness is all about. That you'll notice that the people that spend a great amount of time benefiting other people are the people that have the least amount of depression in their lives. Because rather than trying to find their happiness in wealth or in substance abuse or in other things, they found their happiness in serving other people. And you'll notice that if you pay attention to the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants you happiness in are things that you actually need. And subhanAllah, this is a great wisdom from Ibn al-Qayyim that can you imagine some things that you need to survive, like eating, like going to the bathroom, like sleeping, marital relations, all of these things, as human beings, we, made, we need them. So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? He makes them enjoyable for us. He makes them enjoyable for us. That we feel happy when we eat. We feel happy when we sleep. You feel relieved when you go to the bathroom. You, you, actually, I won't even get to the last one. But it's obvious, right? So then imagine if Allah had made these things painful for us. That you, when you eat, it's like a, a dreadful, a painful thing. You wouldn't want to eat. Going to sleep was painful and dreadful. You wouldn't want to sleep. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes something enjoyable, within limits, that thing is meant to be pursued. And, in, and obviously in excess, it's meant to be avoided. Now the point being, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created happiness in helping people is a clear indication that this is what our purpose is meant to be. That we're meant to help people. And this is why in, our, in my khutbah today, it was just about this. One hadith where the Messenger of Allah says in very succinct words, that the most beloved of people to Allah are those that are the most helpful and useful to the people. The most beloved of deeds to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to bring happiness to a fellow Muslim or to take away from him something that is harming him or to help him in his time of need or to uh, consolidate one of his debts for him. And the Messenger of Allah goes on to conclude that it is more beloved to me to walk with my brother in his time of need than to make i'tikaf in al-Masjid al-Nabawi for one month. Than to make i'tikaf in al-Masjid al-Nabawi for one month. So here you'll notice that all of it is about helping people. And this is why when you look at Islam, all of it has to do with community. It has to do with helping people. That even the concept of zakah, what is it about? It's about showing concern and showing love for people and helping people. When you think about the masjid, what is the masjid for? The masjid is not just a place that you pray, it's a place that you socialize, you bring people in, you have your aqiqahs here, you have your walimas here. It's celebrating people's success and joyous moments in people's lives. So you'll notice that Islam is again, this very communal religion. And in happiness, that's what you need to focus on. The three things from the Islamic perspective, and then this concept which is Islamic as well, but we look at it, helping people as much as you can. That when you help people, that is when you will truly be happy. The last thing about family, and I want to give this section to Shaykh Muslih ta'ala to enlighten us, but I just want to mention one thing quickly. I want you to think about the things that you enjoy doing the most. So I want you to think about what is it that you enjoy doing the most. Perhaps you may enjoy playing a sport, perhaps you enjoy watching TV, going to a movie, playing video games, whatever it may be. Think about that activity that you enjoy doing the most. So just have that idea in your mind. So just think about it right now and have it in your mind. What is the thing that you enjoy doing the most? Just have that in your mind. Now I want you to think. Imagine this activity is happening and your cell phone keeps going off. How would you feel at that time? 
you'd feel extremely annoyed and you'd turn it off. I want you to think about what if during that time you remembered you had an assignment that was due the next day or a task from work that had to be submitted right away. Your boss calls you and says you have to do that thing right now. Even that activity that you enjoy doing the most, would you still be able to enjoy that activity? No, you wouldn't be able to do it because something becomes a distraction. Now what happens with our family life is that we will get people that will live in the same house. And you will think that just because I'm at home at the same time, that all of a sudden I've spent good quality family time. But what is our concept of family time? I'm going to be in my room, you're going to be in your room. I need something from you, I text it to you. Or I'll get onto my computer and I'll message you on Google or on Skype. Hey, let's communicate even though we're in the same house. You'll notice that time, when it comes time to eat, it's like everyone's on the same table and everyone has an iPad in one hand and their Blackberries or iPhone in the other. And that's what we're doing. So you'll notice that we've introduced all of these distractions into our personal family lives. And our concept of quality time, it's completely disappeared. One simple act of just taking care and observing quality time with your family can make a world of a difference. So that when you turn off your cell phones, that you're at home, this is time for the family, you're not going to look at your cell phone. You're not going to look at your emails. You're not going to be using any form of technology unless it's a family-related activity. And take away all those distractions from your life and ta'ala, you'll see that your family life will improve. Ta'ala. Just one simple thing. Now what I want to conclude with is that reading list and then I will invite Sheikh Muslim. So now you're taking notes on the books that you want to try to read. Ta'ala. So let's start off with deen. Let's start off with deen. In, your, in the deen, there's three things that you will need. Number one is a good translation of the Qur'an. A good translation of the Qur'an. So you will need maybe something like Sahih International, something like um, you know, Asad Ali's translation of the Qur'an, very fluid, very easy to read. That's your relationship with the Qur'an. Number two, you will want a copy of Riyadh al-Salihin. You will want a copy of Riyadh al-Salihin. And read this regularly, and this will melt your heart away. That whenever you feel your heart, your heart is getting hard, you read Riyadh al-Salihin, and bidillahi ta'ala, it will melt away. And the third thing I'll mention, and this is like my own personal book, it's a very modern day book, it's called The Salah, its effect on increasing iman and purifying the soul. The Salah, the prayer, its effect on increasing iman and purifying the soul. And it's a detailed analysis of the Salah from beginning to end. It's written in English and it's published by Al-Hidayah Publications. Published by Al-Hidayah Publications. We move on to the next section, which is finances. Finances. And what you want to get in your finances section is a series of books called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Rich Dad and Poor Dad. Has anyone heard of these, this series before? A couple of people. Rich Dad and Poor Dad. This is by Robert Kiyosaki. By Robert Kiyosaki. And this will tell you how to manage your finances. Obviously, there are certain elements of it that are clearly un-Islamic when he talks about like interest and things like that. But you eliminate that aspect of it. The third thing you want to look at is your career. The third thing you want to look at is your career. And this is a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. The 4-Hour Workweek. Does anyone know who it's by? Excellent, by Tim Ferriss, by Tim Ferriss. You move on to health. Tim Ferriss, the same author, he has another book called The 4-Hour Body. The 4-Hour Body, fantastic book, fantastic book. I don't have any recommendations for social life. Um, for family, we move on to family. You want to get a book called The 7 Steps 
of an effective family. The seven steps of an effective family. And this is by Stephen Covey. By Stephen Covey. By Stephen Covey. And I don't have anything for emotions or social life. And I think that's the, all the aspects, correct? So no, there's no social life and there's no emotions. That, Bidhanayi you, you learn on your own, Bidhanayi So though that's like a recommended reading list for those of you who want to further your studies on this. And Bidhanayi Ta'ala, Sheikh Muslih will be talking to us about family. Jazakumullahu khairan. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Amma ba'd, brothers and sisters, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And of course, jazakallahu khairan, Sheikh Nabeed, for, for having me here and giving me a chance to take part in something very wonderful. You guys have something really great going on here. And you know, we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to accept our efforts and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to put barakah in our time that we spend together. Because this is the one thing that you want for every single Muslim out there in any community. You want them to come to the house of Allah Azza wa Jal and just have a good time and just learn something about who we are and how we can implement the morals and the ethics that our religion teaches us in our daily lives. You know, one of the things that was interesting that was mentioned here in the halaqa today is normally when you give advice to somebody, the hope is that that person will accept the advice from you or at least they would think about the advice, they would think about those words. You know, today in the khutbah for myself, when I gave a khutbah, I talked about the etiquettes of Yawmul Jumu'ah. And so I started going, going through a list of etiquettes that I thought were relevant to the community about how you should observe Jummah, how you should sit and what you should do if a phone rings and on that sort of thing. And I remember when I mentioned one particular etiquette of how to sit when you're in Salatul Jummah, I noticed that some of the brothers, they immediately changed their posture right in front of me. And I thought to myself, you know, this is something really praiseworthy. I can't let this go. So I paused my khutbah and I wanted to give hope to this individual and all the other brothers or the sisters who did the same thing. That this was a sign that Allah Azza wa Jal wanted good for you. And it's a sign that Allah Azza wa Jal loves you. Now imagine if you take that same concept and you apply it to your family. One of the biggest issues that we find in our families today is this concept called consumerism where you try to collect and gather as many things as you can and you figure that this is the thing that's going to make your family happy. Let me give you an example. How many of us here have children? How many of you have children? Many of you have children. Now, for those of you who might have children that are under 10 or 8 years old, somewhere around there, now just think about what was the first thing that your child asked you for? Did they ask you for you know, a chance to go out and, and see, the, see the community or go out with their friends or do something that the family could do together? Or did they ask you, mom, dad, I need a PS2. Mom, dad, I need a cell phone. Mom, dad, I need this. And by the time they get 16 years old, mom, dad, I need a car. What do you need a car for? Because I want to take my friends out. So you see what happened here is that eventually these families, they found 
happiness and they found that, that avenue that could bring or bring a, a, a close-knit relationship with everybody within the family based on what you, what you get, based on how much you accumulate. And I'll give you a very clear, explicit example I'm sure many of us can relate to. Imagine a kid, he walks into the Apple store and he buys the iPhone 5. What happens to him? It's like he was Superman. He comes out and he's like, Alhamdulillah, you know, I am the iPhone 5 now, you know. And he comes out and mashallah, he feels as though something about him has changed. So he goes home and he, ta and he, and he lives with that kind of uh, uh, frame or that kind of mentality. Where does he get that from? I'll tell you where he gets this from. He doesn't get it just from the people that he's around. He doesn't just get it because of what he sees on TV. He gets it because of what his home is all about, what it looks like in its house. And an example of this is the way that he remembers his father is he remembers his father always watching TV or doing the same thing on his phone. Or he remembers his mother, she spends time on the phone and she's talking to family all day and night. So what does he do? He starts to develop that the way that he can relate to everyone is through how much he can get. So this is why he starts to, he starts to grow and he starts to mature. And the only way he feels as though he has a relationship with anybody around him is based on what he has. And unfortunately, the child grows up. And the thing that he remembers his parents about, he remembers, I remember my father used to do this, this, this. But he doesn't remember his father as the person who loved the Qur'an or the person that used to attend conferences or used to do those things. And then he'll remember his mother, but he'll remember his mother that she always used to do one thing here, but she won't he won't remember his mother. She was modest, mashallah, everything that she heard, she tried to practice, she taught me this or she taught me that. Because as we all know, the family, especially the mother, she's the first public school, she's the first high school, she's the first college, she's the first university for her entire family. A lot of the morals and the ethics that the child will get will be from the mother first, before it comes from the father. Now where is all of this going? There's one particular verse that is found in Surah Muhammad and where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us فَهَلْ عَصَيْتُمْ إِن تَوَلَّيْتُمْ أَن تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَتُقَطِّعُوا أَرْحَامَكُمْ Now listen to this verse. Allah Azza wa Jal, and I just want to focus at the end of the verse. Allah mentions breaking off ties. But then He explains subhanahu wa ta'ala what, what is this all talking about. First thing is that Allah says, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ لَعَلَهُمُ اللَّهِ فَأَصَمَّهُمْ وَأَعْمَى أَبْصَارَهُمْ Three things. That this person here who breaks off ties, now don't look at this as a very high skill, just look at this as just in our own modern day lives. This is the person that you have a family in your home, but as Sheikh Naveed mentions, you know your child is inside that room, your other child is in another room, and the only way you can communicate, there's a breakage, there's a problem between the way you speak and the relationship you have with your family. So the way that you communicate is like you mentioned, you, know, you go on Facebook and you poke your child, it's dinner time, right? For those of you who have Facebook, you know what I'm talking about, right? So you're poking each other all day. So the point is, is this the way that communica you communicate with one another? And subhanAllah, I remember I met um, a sister, and mashallah, she's very active in da'wah. But she was very passionate about one point that personally, it doesn't sit very well with me. And she says, I'm very proud of my children because uh, I've reached their level. So I said to the sister, what do you mean? And she said to me that every single day, 
when I'm on my way from, from work to my house, I text message my children that I'm on my way home, and I text message them that this is the time we're going to have dinner. So by the time she reaches home, she continues text messaging them. And she said very blatantly in front of all of us, that is why I have an unlimited plan. <laughs> like, I mean, this is the thing that she became so proud of. And this is the thing that she valued so much in terms of her relationship with her children. This is the last thing that you want to do. But going back to that same verse, why would Allah say that the person who's disconnected with their family and their relatives, they have the curse of Allah Azza wa Jal upon them? Then when they're given advice, they can't hear the advice. This is not the person that is deaf, by the way. This is simply the person that when you try to tell them to do good things, it's as if they're not hearing you. Or they'll say, okay, Jazakallah khair, and life just continues. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions the third thing is that their eyes are blind. So they'll see other families that are close-knit, doing things together. As Sheikh Naveed mentions, doing activities together, going out and spending time as a family. But it doesn't really affect them. It doesn't really sink into their heart exactly what all of this means. Some of the ulama of tafsir, they mentioned that this is the verse that shows that if a person does not have close ties with their families, then they will be cut off from the community as a whole. Their eyes will be cut off, their ears will be cut off spiritually, right? They won't see the goodness around them. They won't hear, they won't know how to comprehend the goodness that they hear. So they will hear, قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى قَالَ رَسُولُهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ But it just won't sink into their heart. And this is where we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to help us and give us the guidance and the strength that we can overcome this. And then finally, inshaAllah, I don't want to present problems to you unless we can have solutions. So how do you fix all of this? The way you fix all of this is the next ayah in the same surah. Immediately after Allah Azza wa Jal talks about having that close-knit relationship and what is the result if you don't, Allah tells you how to cure it. أَفَلَا يَتَدَبَّرُونَ الْقُرْآنَ Immediately after talking about families and relationship, Allah says, don't you ponder and think about Qur'an? Don't you use the Qur'an as the source of guidance that this is the, this is the thing that you need to find all the happiness and contentment, to connect all the dots in your family. Now how do you implement that in your families? The first way, brothers and sisters, and wallahi, I, this is something that I'm very passionate about. And that is, is that you have halaqas in your home. You actually have this halaqa time where it's just you and your family and you're sharing maybe a story in, of the Qur'an or a one particular hadith and you literally sit down there and you say to your children and to your husband or to your wife, I learned this today, this is what it was all about and you start to discuss it and literally this takes maybe five, seven or ten minutes. If you do that, wallahi, inshaAllah, you will find that that relationship that all of us we strive for with our mothers and our fathers, with our children, it will start to receive that beauty. It would start to, to look sweet. It would start to have the blessing and the barakah that we all desire when we have our families. So the first thing is you want to have some kind of spiritual time, some kind of halaqa time, some time that you can share each with each other, something that you learned about this religion. And wallahi, I say this to you straight, inshallah, brothers and sisters, the things that you hear that Sheikh Naveed brings to you, just go back to your homes. And for those of you who have your children or families that are not here, just try it tonight. 
Go back to your homes tonight and say, look, I learned this, this, this from Sheikh Naveed, that he taught us about our finance, he taught us about our emotions, he taught us about happiness, and this is some of the things that we can implement. I guarantee you, inshallah, you will find that you'll be able, you'll stop poking your kids, and then in addition, you'll start to speak to them and communicate with them directly. When you see your husband, when you see your spouse, they will be that source of happiness that after you leave all the pressures and the stress outside of your home, you come home, it's going to feel like a little Jannah for you. And then in addition to all of that, with this one move, with this one family halaqa, you will find that the family starts to come together. And one halaqa is going to turn into, let's go out to Banff, let's go out to somewhere and let's do something together. Let's go out to that family night. Let's go out and play basketball. Let's go out for an evening walk. Let's go and do something together. It's just a ripple effect. One thing just leads to another, just leads to another. How does it start? It starts by all of you coming together, inshallah. For the sake of Allah, building communication with your children, building communication with your family and your relatives and cleansing your heart that wallahi every time qala Allahu ta'ala and qala rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam you will be of those that are from the ummah who say sami'na wa ata'na we hear it and alhamdulillah we obey may allah azza wa jal put barakah in our homes may allah azza wa jal put barakah in our lives in our children may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect our children and give them an upbringing that is pleasing to him before it is it is pleasing to us and may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all it is always a pleasure for me to be here amongst you in calgary this is definitely a home away from home may allah azza wa jal reward you all and Sheikh Naveed The first thing I want to emphasize is that with this halaqa we've concluded this section on personal development. Starting from next week we actually move on to that once you have a successful individual how do we now get a successful couple a successful married life within Lahi Ta'ala. So the next four halaqas within Lahi Ta'ala will be based upon marriage. So next week's halaqa is just about the ruling on marriage how to get married what opportunities do you have to get married if you are finding it difficult to get married, how do you facilitate it to get married? All these things are going to be discussed in next week's halaqa, bidhillahi ta'ala. What I want to conclude this week's halaqa with is, you'll notice in the Quran that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about iman, there's an automatic correlation with amal. So there's always iman and amal. And similarly, these seven elements of your life, we started off the very first halaqa to show you where you are right now. That wheel, that journey to Allah, that is where you are right now. Now the only way that improves is not just by you sitting and learning, but it's about you taking action in your life. So that if you remember that third page that I gave you on that very first halaqa, that third page was about action steps that you're going to take to get a 10 out of 10 in these seven components. Now when you're taking action, you will notice that two things make a world of a difference. Number one, what is the purpose behind that action? And then what is your motivation? What is the purpose behind that action and what is the motivation? So let, you, let me give you a simple example. Someone's trying to lose weight. Someone's trying to lose weight. The purpose behind it is because I need to become healthier. 
That is the motivation, that is the purpose behind it. The motivation behind it is that ta'ala, rather than wearing like size 36 jeans, I'll be able to fit into like a size 32 jeans now. That's like the motivation. So you differentiate between the purpose and the motivation. Now in your lives, when you're taking action, these are the two most fundamental components that you need to figure out why am I doing this action and why do I need to do this action? And that is the purpose. Then the second thing is, what is going to be my motivation behind it? What is something that will drag me out of bed, will make me struggle and suffer to improve? And if you can answer these two questions for each and every component, you will see improvement on that. The last thing I want to do is make an announcement for a special event that we're having. For those of you that remember the One Ummah Conference, I made a, you know, a wide variety of promises to the community. Alhamdulillah, we started up some of them, and some of them you know, we're still a bit slow on. But we're having our first event of Date Your Spouse, Bidhanillahi Ta'ala. That's December 29th. December 29th, so it's coming up in a couple of weeks. Let me briefly explain what this is. Date Your Spouse. So we've been speaking about family, one of the biggest challenges is that once you have children, all of a sudden, the romance in the family dies. You know, that object that came into your life that brings so much happiness is a cause of so much destruction at the same time. Because we don't know how to balance it. So the purpose behind Date Your Spouse is that for those of you that have children over the age of five, we as the IISC, as a community organization, will take care of your children on that day for three whole hours. For three hours on the condition that you take your spouse out for dinner. You take your spouse out for dinner, so start making reservations. It's holiday season, it's gonna be a Saturday night. It's gonna be difficult to get that reservation. So make reservations from now. And registration, inshallah, will be open maybe from this weekend or within this week, all the way up until the Sunday of the week before. So around December 21st. And on December 21st, we're gonna close registration. Now what you need to do is, sign up for our emailing list because I'll be sending out a video to explain how it's going to work and what you need to do. The key thing is, you just need to make sure you're on point that day. Then make sure you get the flowers ready. Make sure you have the reservation for the restaurant. Make sure you have a fun night planned. That you know, one of the difficult things is that when you forget the concept of romance, that all of a sudden when you and your wife are sitting, it's like, what do we talk about now? You know, there are no kids to distract us, there's no cell phone, there's nothing striking even happening. How do I speak to my wife now? So you may even want to think about things that you want to speak about, because you're not in the habit of doing it anymore. So make sure you have all these things planned, make it special for your wife, and you'll notice that automatically it'll become a special night for you as well. So that's happening December 29th for children over the age of five at this very location. For further information, sign up to our emailing list. Details will be sent out within the week. Jazakumullahu khairan.